a message from Trinity Grace Church in San Antonio, Texas. For more information, please visit trinitygracesa.org. This morning, first be listening for a story about a courtroom. A story about a courtroom. Second, be listening for how you would describe our spiritual condition. How would you describe our spiritual condition? And third, be listening for a story about a Navy SEAL. A story about a Navy SEAL. Well, last week we celebrated the resurrection of Jesus in a special way on Easter Sunday, and that celebration actually kicks off a new season in the church calendar known as Eastertide. It's a season that will last the next six Sundays and allow us the chance to consider what the resurrection of Jesus practically means for his followers. What does it look like to have resurrection power now that the Holy Spirit has come to reside in your heart? What does it look like to live as a resurrection community focused on loving and serving our friends and neighbors here in Northwest San Antonio? Over the next six weeks, we're going to be camping out in chapter 8 of the book of Romans in a series entitled Living a Resurrected Life. This chapter, it really paints a picture of what difference the resurrection of Jesus makes in our lives and in our community. It shows us what living a resurrected life looks like. Now, we never want to put one part of God's Word over against another, but through the centuries, the book of Romans has been viewed as the pinnacle of Scripture by some. The shining jewel where God's plan of salvation is most clearly and completely explained for us. And within that book that contains 16 chapters, chapter 8 has been viewed as the pinnacle of the letter. The great crescendo which highlights the practical consequences of salvation for those whom God loves. Romans chapter 8 might be the chapter that you would take to a deserted island if you were only allowed to take one chapter of the Scriptures. It would certainly make the list for consideration at least. And as we spend the next month looking at Romans chapter 8, it'll give you the chance to soak in its encouragement and its beauty and its comfort. Maybe you'll find yourself reading and meditating on Romans chapter 8 through the week in your own devotional life. Maybe you'll take some time this month to consult a good commentary so that you might dive even deeper than we're able to go here on Sunday morning. I'd be happy to recommend one or two if you're interested in that. Maybe you'll decide to even memorize some verses from Romans chapter 8 that are particularly encouraging to you. At least the next month is going to be a neat opportunity to live in this chapter with some intentionality as we come back to it every Sunday. And this morning, we're going to start at the beginning, reading verses 1 through 11, but specifically focusing on verses 1 through 4 today. You follow along as I read beginning in verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit." 
For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Well, this is God's word. He gives it to us because he loves us and he wants us to know him. Something you might not know about me is that I really enjoy a good legal trial. I love when a case captures the attention of the nation and then that case moves to a trial to discern if someone is innocent or guilty. We normally see one of these cases every year or two where the entire nation is aware of what's happening. Sometimes the trial is even broadcast for everyone to watch on TV. You might remember the O.J. Simpson case from the mid-90s. I mean, the nation was glued to that trial, wasn't it? There have been documentaries and miniseries that have been made that bring that trial and that case back to life, even today. It was so popular that it's hard not to have an opinion about that particular trial. A few years back, I was actually summoned to jury duty here in San Antonio. I made my way downtown on a Monday morning and sat in a room with hundreds of other citizens. I was eventually called in a block of 75 people to a courtroom where the lawyers were tasked with choosing 12 jurors for their trial. Well, as a potential juror, you fill out information. You might have done this about who you are, about your level of education, about your profession, giving both sides the opportunity to discern if you might be favorable to their case. Well, when it came time to put my profession on the form there, I put Presbyterian pastor, and I thought surely that would be my quickest ticket home, right? Well, I was wrong. I was selected for jury duty. Uh, I was not just selected for jury duty, I was selected to sit on the jury itself. It was pretty amazing. I listened to the arguments from each side for five days. It was pretty interesting to me as someone who likes a good trial. And right when they were about to give us instructions and send us to deliberate, the parties came to a resolution and settled the case before we had to reach a verdict. It was a bit uh, of a bummer, but I was kind of relieved as well because it meant we didn't have to wrangle over different viewpoints on the jury, right? Well, anytime you're tuned into a high-profile trial the thing, every argument, the thing, every piece of evidence, every expert witness, every cross-examination leads up to is the verdict. The verdict, it's the finding or the decision of a jury on the matter submitted to it in trial. And it's a big deal when you're watching a nationally televised case and you get the news that the jury has reached a verdict. I mean, everyone comes back to the courtroom. Normally, it doesn't matter what time of day it is. The tensions are normally high. The suspense can be unbearable as the verdict is passed from the jury to the judge to read out loud. People's fate hangs in the balance, and it's all determined by that verdict that's handed down in the moment. Well, as we consider our passage this morning, the image of a verdict being handed down is helpful. 
Because Paul starts his chapter, this chapter 8 and verse 1, by saying, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. In other words, the verdict has been handed down. And if you're in Christ, there is no condemnation for you. You are free. You have been acquitted. There's no judgment left to be exacted. Now, that is good news for a group of folks who have recognized their sin and their deep need for forgiveness, isn't it? But unfortunately, you know as well as I, we don't always live in light of the verdict of God, do we? Sure, it's the ultimate verdict in our life. We would recognize that verbally. It's the one verdict that matters most. It comes from the Lord. But you and I are prone to let lesser verdicts dictate our lives, are we not? I mean, think of all the verdicts that you hear on a weekly basis. Think of all the voices in your life that place you on trial. You think of your job. You think of your kids. You think of your bank account. You think of your body image. You think of your marriage relationship. You think of your morality. We are getting verdicts handed down from so many places throughout the week, aren't we? And there are many things in life that are more than happy to condemn you to disapprove of you, to make you feel guilty. Think about your kids, for instance. What kind of verdict have they passed down this week on you? Well, it probably depends on the week, doesn't it? Sometimes they're pretty well behaved and and making good decisions and you feel approved as a parent. But when difficult behaviors arise, hard seasons come, we hear the verdict that screams, you're a failure, you're condemned. And this dynamic is at play in so many other areas of our lives. I mean, if we have enough money in the bank account, we feel secure and worthwhile and confident. But if we don't have as much as the next person, it's easy to feel worthless and fearful and anxious. If we're doing a good job at work, for instance, we feel competent and valuable. But if we struggle to produce at work and folks begin to get unhappy with the job that we do, we feel stressed and insignificant. These are verdicts that we hear on a weekly basis. And we could go on. But the point is, we all live under various verdicts being handed down on a daily basis. Verdicts that tell us if we're valuable and acceptable. Verdicts that dictate how we live and how we love. And I wonder this morning if you like the verdicts you're hearing. Do you like the verdicts that you've been hearing this week? You might, at least temporarily, right? And that's the problem with verdicts that are passed down from things like our jobs, our kids, our spouses, our friends, our accomplishments. They change drastically from day to day, don't they? They're fickle. They might pronounce acceptance one day and then condemnation the next. And depending on how you're doing and what verdict you receive, you might be feeling enormous pride and satisfaction because you're able to keep up with the demands. Or you might feel dejected and discouraged if things aren't going well. We live in bondage to so many different verdicts in our life. Looking at various sources to tell us that we're okay. That we're valuable. That we're accepted. It's as if we were created to feel secure and accepted and valued, isn't it? Well, the Bible actually tells us that's true. 
mean, we were created to enjoy acceptance and relationship, both vertically and horizontally, vertically with God, horizontally with one another, security in the present and the future. We were created to know that we're deeply valued as image bearers of God. But then sin comes along and it ruins what we were created to experience. And as a result, what we do is we go looking to various sources in our lives to help fix us, to tell us that we're okay, to define who we should be, to restore the security and acceptance and value that was stolen by sin. That's why we desperately need what Paul offers us in Romans chapter 8 this morning. It is unbelievably good news for a group of people who are constantly on the search for a verdict that might set us free. In our passage, we're reminded that if we're in Christ, if we've placed our faith in Him, then the most important verdict in your life says that you're secure, you're accepted, you're valued. And the curious thing about God's verdict that Paul highlights in our passage is that it's the one verdict in your life that you cannot earn. You can't earn this verdict from God. While we can earn the approval and the positive verdict of so many people and things in our lives, the one positive verdict that we need most can't be earned by us. We're completely powerless in and of ourselves to earn God's liberating verdict. If you follow Paul's logic through the book of Romans, and he is a logical guy, and so... Uh, maybe buckle up for a minute because we're going to try to follow his logic a little bit through this series, you learn that God's verdict of acceptance and freedom can only come through perfectly obeying his commands. You have got to get that. You'll notice that Paul uses the word law a lot in his letter to the Romans. And when he refers to the law, he is normally talking about God's commands, primarily from the Old Testament. And when you think about the law, it's important to remember that the law is good, it's holy, it's righteous, it reveals who God is, His character, it reveals what matters to Him, it shows how we're supposed to live in a way that would lead to flourishing and freedom. And Paul is making the case throughout the letter to the Romans that the verdict we need most is earned through obedience to the law. But there's a big problem with that, isn't there? We can't earn it because we're spiritually dead. We're powerless to keep God's law because of sin. Paul highlights our powerlessness throughout the letter. If you were to back up a little bit in Romans chapter 5, verse 17, he says, By the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man. In Romans 6, verse 23, he says, The wages of sin is death. Throughout the New Testament, we learn more and more about our spiritual condition. And it's fairly clear that we are not just spiritually sick. It's not that we need a little bit of help. You know, maybe if we could just reach over and grab the medicine and take it, we'd be okay. No, throughout the New Testament, it's clear that you and I in our natural state are spiritually dead. We're completely powerless, incapable of doing anything that spiritually merits God's approval that might earn his favorable verdict in our life. In fact, since God is perfect and holy and hates sin, the verdict that you and I deserve is one of guilt and condemnation. That's what we should get. So you start to see the predicament that we're in, don't you? 
I mean, we crave God's verdict of acceptance and approval and value. That verdict comes through perfect obedience to the law, His commands, yet you and I are incapable of fulfilling God's commands because we're spiritually dead, powerless due to sin. The law is a standard. It's there to show us how far short we fall. The law has no life in and of itself. It's like an inanimate object. It's there to act as a mirror for us, a reminder that we don't meet the standard. Paul says as much back in Romans 3 when he writes, For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Look, the law is there simply to show us how far short we fall to expose our sin. And while the law of God, His commandments and expectations are holy and righteous and good, there are some things that the law isn't good for. Some things the law can't do. The law cannot change you from the inside out. It's powerless to rescue you. It can't usher you into new life. The law simply exposes how far short you fall. And if we're able to see that, and I hope you follow me thus far, then verse 3 is some of the best news in all the world. We see there that God has done what the law couldn't do, what the law can't do. It's no longer a pathway that can save me or change me because I'm powerless to keep the law, so God has to take the initiative. And in verse 3, this is what we read, For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. We see that God sends His Son. God doesn't spare His Son. God gives up His Son for us. Jesus comes, he takes on the likeness of sinful flesh, he humbles himself by taking on our limitations. The creator steps into his creation and he lives a life of active obedience to God's law, perfectly obeying every single one of God's commands. And then after that's done, towards the end of his life, he passively allows the curse of sin to fall down on him, taking the penalty that our sin deserves, becoming a sin offering, Paul says, for his people so that God's wrath and judgment might be satisfied. And he does all of this for us so that we might experience the acceptance and affirmation of God, so that we might have life. It reminds me when President George W. Bush presented the Medal of Honor to slain Navy SEAL Michael Monsoor. And I've watched this on YouTube. It's, it's kind of one of those YouTube videos that I go back to uh, every once in a while to watch this ceremony of him presenting posthumously to, to Michael Monsoor. But Michael Monsoor's parents are up there with the President of the United States. And during the ceremony, a military aide actually reads the citation describing Mansoor's heroic acts in Iraq. And part of that citation reads like this. In the midst of heated battle, while the SEALs vigilantly watched for enemy activity, an insurgent threw a hand grenade from an unseen location, which bounced off Petty Officer Mansoor's chest and landed in front of him. Although only he could have escaped the blast, Petty Officer Mansoor chose instead to protect his teammates. Instantly and without regard for his own safety, he threw himself onto the grenade to absorb the force of the explosion with his body, saving the lives of his two teammates. 
There is a reason why I can't hear that full citation read on YouTube without being deeply touched. There is something inside us that is moved by that kind of self-sacrifice for the sake of others, is there not? I mean, it's not unlike what Jesus did for us, if you think about it. When only he could have escaped God's wrath by his perfect obedience, instead he absorbed the force of the explosion of God's wrath against sin on the cross. Knowing exactly what he was doing, without regard to his own safety, and as a result, rescuing any who might place their faith in his work. Look, if you doubt that God loves you, if you doubt that he likes you, This morning, then just look at what he did in sending his son to accomplish what dead, powerless people couldn't accomplish. And because of all this, if we're covered by Jesus, if we are in him, then God looks at us, and the verdict we hear is that is what we were made for accepted, secure, valued. Now, knowing this, and having followed with Paul's very logical argument, The question we should be asking by way of application this morning is whose verdict are you going to pay attention to? Maybe even this week. Let's start small. Without being overly simplistic, we've got two options. We can keep trying to satisfy the demands of all the voices in our lives who constantly hand down verdicts on our performance and our morality and how well we're doing, or we can listen to the voice of God who says that there is now no condemnation for you if you're in Christ Jesus. The verdict that says you were forgiven, accepted, valued, significant because of the performance of another, namely Jesus Christ. In other words, we are either going to live as those in bondage to lots of different voices that constantly change, or we're going to live as free people in light of the one ultimate voice that is meant to define you. And depending on what choice you make on any given day, that dictates the amount of anxiety and fear and security that you're going to experience. I mean, if we choose the numerous voices that want to hand down verdicts in our lives, we will work ourselves to death, won't we? Some of you have experienced this. Continually compare ourselves to others. We'll live and die on how we're currently performing. We'll live with uncontrollable pride if we're doing well and checking all the boxes. Or we'll live with uncontrollable discouragement and despair if we're failing and the verdicts aren't positive. But if we choose to live in light of the verdict God hands down, the verdict that we are fully accepted, valued, secure in Christ, then we can experience peace and security and rest, spiritual rest. If we begin to believe that we're fully accepted in Christ, then we'll stop looking to lesser things to define us, won't we? We won't look to our children or our spouse or our job or our possessions to tell us that we're okay. I realize this is easier said than done but we'll get better at it, hopefully. We won't look to those things to tell us that we're acceptable, that we're secure. Those things were never meant to have as much power in our lives as we give them. Yet we give them outsized power all the time, don't we? And unlike Jesus, those things, your kids, your spouse, your job, your possessions, your morality, those things will not serve you. Those things don't sacrifice for you. 
Those things don't give to you. All they do is take from you. Those things don't love you. In Christ, we've been set free to find our identity and security in what God says about us. We're meant to give Him that power, to let Him define us. And as He does, we become free people. We are free to love and serve and expend ourselves for others, not worried about what others think or even how they respond to our ministry because we're no longer defined by their opinion or verdict on us. We're secure in Christ. We're defined by God's verdict on our lives. Doesn't that sound appealing? Wouldn't you rather embrace your freedom in Christ than continue living under the bondage of cruel taskmasters? Look, God's verdict is what matters. It's most important. And if I were in a legal battle, let's just say, and my case was taken all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States and I won, I would not constantly be going back and double-checking with the lower courts, would I? But in a real sense, that's what I do every day. Looking to friends, looking to my parental performance, looking to my job, looking to my spouse, double-checking with them, the lower courts, so to speak, to tell me that I'm accepted. Refusing to live out of God's verdict that I'm fully accepted if I'm in Christ. Our guilt was placed on Jesus. He took the penalty that we deserved so that sin would be condemned, so that we might be set free. You are not condemned if you're hidden in Christ. Christ and you belong to God. And when we receive God's verdict, we're set free and all other verdicts begin to pale in comparison. God's verdict is meant to change our lives and God invites us to believe what he says is true this morning. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word that reveals our deep need and how you come to meet that deep need on our behalf. We thank you for Jesus who lived the perfect life that we could not live and died a death in order to satisfy wrath against our sin. And we pray this morning that as we think about how deeply you love us, as we think about the lengths to which you're willing to go in order to rescue us, that you would, that you would provide security, confidence in our hearts as we rest in your work. Lord, help us to live according to your verdict this week, we pray. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.